0: Hello, and welcome to Further Up and Further In, a podcast. This is now episode 22 of the podcast, in which we will discuss chapter three of Prince Caspian, titled The Dwarf. And the dwarf in question is Trumpkin, who ends up being one of the best characters in the whole book. Um, he's certainly one of my favorites in this story, as especially as he contrasts with Nickabrick, who is going to be the more sour and teetotaling and a gloomy of the dwarves. Trumkin is going to be one who is loyal, obedient, um, friendly. And in this story, he is introduced to the plot. And we begin to unravel in this chapter away from just a reintroduction to the four children that we knew from The line the Witch, in the Wardrobe into the newness and novelty of this story with a brand new character in Trumkin. But as of right now, he's simply the dwarf. We don't discover who he is until gosh, probably chapter uh, eight or so. Um, but at the end of this chapter, he will segue into a story for the four children, Trumpkin will, in which he recounts everything that has happened uh, since they've been gone, especially as, a re- as it regards Caspian. Uh, that's This is where we will learn of, of Miraz and his tyranny. Uh, we'll discover Truffle Hunter and as I said, Nickabrick, and the plot will move away from the four children at the ruins of Caerperavel, and it will go back to the very beginning of Caspian's story, as told by Trumpkin the dwarf. But in chapter three, uh, he's introduced in a rather interesting way. We'll get to that in just a moment. But I want to uh, look at the opening to chapter three, because it's quite interesting. Obviously, we've been following the four children uh, and their discoveries of the treasure chamber, in Kerpervel where they are reunited with their tokens from Father Christmas, the sword, the cordial, the bow and arrow, and so on. And we see this slow but sure awakening uh, within the children of the enchanting air of Narnia. The, the magic is slowly starting to return as they realize certain truths of where they are. Uh, they rediscover Uh, things that were once familiar to them, but yet they they have not discovered exactly what has happened. They're not quite sure why Care Paravel's in ruins, not quite sure how they got there. Uh, So there's still some mysteries to be solved. And at the beginning of chapter three, Lewis says this, the worst of sleeping out of doors is that you wake up so dreadfully early. And when you wake, you have to get up because the ground is so hard that you are uncomfortable. And it makes matters worse if there's nothing but apples for breakfast. And you have had nothing but apples for supper the night before. When Lucy had said truly enough that it was a glorious morning, there did not seem to be anything else nice to be said. Edmund said what everyone was feeling. We've simply got to get off this island. Now, Paravel wasn't on an island uh, when they lived in it, but now, um, due to the process of time, it is. And yet the tone of that opening is rather gloomy and uh, miserable. This worst of sleeping out of doors is waking up so dreadfully early. A lot of key diction there with the word worst, dreadfully. Um, there's, it makes matters worse if there's nothing but apples for breakfast. Uh, even the point where the the statement is that there wasn't anything else nice to be said other than what Lucy said. This repetition of words like worse and nothing seems interesting regarding the fact that they're in Narnia. This is the Narnia of uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The Narnia Lucy enters through the Wardrobe. This this is that enchanting land. And yet, by this book, something has happened. And this uh, opening, it contrasts with uh, the experiences Caspian will have Uh, later on in the story in chapter seven, when he awakes from sleeping out of doors, and yet he experiences a sense of grandeur and a sense of joy and longing and and this romantic experience of Narnia. contrasts heavily with this one, because for Caspian at that moment in the story, it is an awakening where he has discovered who he is and uh, this um, underground existence of old Narnians rebelling against his uncle, Miraz. So for him, it is a movement away from the drab and away from the the dull and the tedious into a land of uh, bright, vivid color and um, joy. But for the children here, they're entering into a Narnia that um, has lost much of that enchantment. When they return, something has banished the enchantment of old Narnia. Now, of course, they don't know what it is yet, uh, but there is something vacant and hollow in the Narnia that they're introduced to again. And in this way, I think Lewis is setting up uh, much of the secular, materialistic nature of Miraz's tyranny. And I mentioned uh, in previous episodes, Devin Brown's book, Inside Prince Caspian. He he makes this point uh, often in that book where Prince Caspian represents In many ways, uh, the modern world that you and I live in, this modern notion of the world as merely uh, mechanistic, merely scientific, that everything can be reduced down to a series of observations and explanations, uh, that man is nothing but a series of chemicals, matter in motion, man is nothing but the end product of so many random mutations In evolution, the universe has no grand spirit to it. The universe has no mystery to it. It's all something that can be easily pinned to styrofoam, like a fourth grade science project. (laughs) We can merely take the miracle of life and the beauty of life and label it with our neat uh, patterns and with our uh, identifications and our uh, facts and data. And human. Nature is so prideful as to try to uh, define everything down to its mere um, elements and its mere chemical makeup. This is a point that uh, Lewis will uh, quite famously state in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader when Ramandu, the star, uh, uh, rebukes one of the children for saying a star is merely a burning ball of gas. And he says, uh, even in your world... That is not what a star is, but simply what it is made of. That Ramandu uh, explains that just because something is made up of so many different physical qualities or made up of so many different um, electrons and neutrons, uh, just because there is this appearance of a rational explanation doesn't mean that you've exhausted everything that that is. Uh, this is a favorite topic of Lewis's. In an essay titled Meditation on a t- in a Toolshed, he does the same thing where he says looking at a sunbeam and looking along it are two completely different experiences where you can look at something and get one particular series of, of um, characteristics, but standing inside the sunbeam and looking up, tracking the sunbeam back up to the sun is an entirely different experience. And so all the way back here with this, uh, this Narnia that the children step into, it's a Narnia that has been robbed of its magic, robbed of its beauty and its glory and its holiness, and has been reduced down to a mere empire, uh, a mere kingdom of a secular tyrant and a repressed uh, people. Um, And so this opening is quite important um, to recognize what has been lost here. We talked about this last week with the ruins that are in need of repair, to quote Milton's phrase, but I want to uh, reference something Thomas Howard has said in his book, Narnia and Beyond, where he calls Narnia the forgotten country. And even that phrase, I don't know what it does for you, but it evokes in me this this wistfulness and this this yearning and aching for beauty, the the forgotten country. The same is true of the phrase, the ruins of Paravel." That phrase just awakens um, that sense of lostness and that sense of hope that uh, those ruins will be restored. But when he calls Narnia the forgotten country, I believe that's the country that the children enter here. And he says this, quote, we may call Narnia the forgotten country because far from being a wholly new region, like Magellan's Pacific, or Marco Polo's Cathay or even the astronaut's moon, it is the very homeland which lies at the back of every man's imagination, which we all yearn for, even if we are wholly unaware of such a yearning. Howard says that Narnia is this forgotten country that is at the back of every man's mind, that the reason we love Narnia so much is that it awakens something that has been dormant in us, this forgotten home that we might not consciously think about. And yet when we go there, when we pass through the wardrobe and when we are called from the railway platform or in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, when we move through the painting into the seas of Narnia, there's something about that that just stirs us. And here the children are having difficulty with that stirring Because Narnia itself has been neutered. It has been lost. Um, The power has been ripped from it uh, by Miraz. Yet, knowing Lewis and knowing uh, the direction he's going to take this story, what has been lost will be found. This is Jesus' great promise. Seek and you shall find that uh, the old Narnia is still alive and well. And we will see that through Trumpkin. We'll see it through Caspian and Dr. Cornelius. Um, The plot will go forward with the awakening of old Narnia. But at this point in the story, that enchantment seems to have been um, banished. So the story uh, goes forward. Edmund says, we've got to get off this island. So they uh, look for ways that they can escape. And finally, there's a realization from Edmund of what has happened. Uh, And it's a realization we've been predicting along the way. But how is it that Caer Piravel's in ruins when they've only been gone um, for a short time in uh, England? And Edmund says this, I've just seen it all. Why, the whole thing. You know what we were puzzling about last night, that it was only a year ago since we left Narnia. But everything looks as if no one had lived in Care Piravel for hundreds of years. Well, don't you see? You know that however long we seem to have lived in Narnia, when we got back through the wardrobe, it seemed to have taken no time at all? And Susan says, go on. Edmund says, and that means that once you're out of Narnia, you have no idea how Narnian time is going. Why shouldn't hundreds of years have gone past in Narnia, while only one year has passed for us in England? And Peter responds, I believe you've got it. In that sense, it really was hundreds of years ago that we lived in Paravel." And now we're coming back to Narnia just as if we were Crusaders or Anglo-Saxons or ancient Britons or someone coming back to modern England. Now, this is a really important point. Uh, first of all, you see Lewis's uh, massive interest in uh, the Anglo-Saxon era of English history and the medieval era. That he shared that with Tolkien. They both saw Anglo-Saxon England as this idyllic, uh, very romanticized, portrait of England prior to the Norman conquest. And you get that sense in the Shire with the Lord of the Rings that this is the way England once was before um, before the Battle of Hastings, before William the Conqueror came and um, conquered the Anglo-Saxon clans and kingdoms to create Anglo-Norman England, the medieval world of England, and so on. So you get that evoked there with Peter's direct reference to the land of Anglo-Saxons, the world of the Anglo-Saxons and the ancient Britons returning to modern England. That's what this must be like. Um, but also, uh, the, and this is a point that I want to refer to Joseph Pierce in his book titled Further Up and Further In, uh, where Pierce really does a, a great job of getting a grip on the what he calls the return of the king motif. Where what we have here, and certainly in Peter, uh, returning to Narnia, is the return of the king. That Peter was the high king of Narnia in its golden age. And now a thousand years later, Peter has been summoned again. That he has is, he is returned to his kingdom. Now he doesn't know it. He doesn't know it. The kingdom is in ruins. There's a lot to be done, of course. But this return of the king motif is quite important in Pierce's analysis. And of course, uh, it echoes the same return of the king in Lord of the Rings, where Aragorn is, uh, returns to take up his kingdom in Gondor. Uh, but listen to Pierce's analysis here. He says this in establishing this scenario, Lewis is resurrecting the motif of the return of the king. As we have seen the long awaited and long prophesied return of Aslan in the line, the witch and the wardrobe resonates with the legends surrounding the return of the king in Tolkien's books which are themselves reflections of the romantic Jacobite longing for the return of the king from over the water, following his exile by rebellious usurpers. And also, and especially, of the Arthurian promise of the once and future king, who will return when England is, in most, is most in need of him. In this sense, the return of the ancient kings and queens to Narnia in Prince Caspian sits more comfortably with the return of the king motif, then does the return of Aslan. Whereas the return of Aslan invites analogies with the second coming, the return of Christ the King, the return of merely mortal monarchs invites parallels with their counterparts in Tolkien's fiction, Thorin and Aragorn, and with legendary and historical kings such as Arthur and the exiled heirs of James II. And so there's a lot there that Pierce has referenced. Um, the first one is the political uh, reference to uh, the Jacobite longing for the return of the king. This is, The Jacobites were those who wanted James II to be restored to the throne of England and Scotland after he had um, been exiled from the throne by William and Mary. In, the, in 1688, this was the glorious revolution um, where William and Mary become the monarchs rather than James II. So, the Jacobites were longing for James to be restored to the throne. So, there's that sense that's evoked But the deeper one, and the more likely one, I think, to be on Lewis's mind here is the one related to Arthur. It's important to remember that uh, Lewis had already relied heavily on Arthurian legend in That Hideous Strength, where he has uh, Arthur referenced a great deal in that book. Even Merlin, the wizard from the Arthurian legends, is uh, resurrected in that novel. And so to think of Peter... Um, as the once and future king, and of course to think of Jesus as that as well. Uh, Peter is the resurrected king. He's the returned king. Um, he is the one who was promised to return and resurrect all of old Narnia when he comes. Uh, what Pierre says: the promise of the once and future king who will return when England is in mo- is most in need of him. This is the nature of the story here. Where Caspian we discover has blown Susan's horn summoning Peter and his siblings back to Narnia to assume the rightful throne in Narnia. And this, of course, will look great when we see Peter fighting Miraz at the end of the novel, that there's so much magic evoked in this concept of the returned king um, to conquer the evil tyranny of the modern world, which is how uh, Lewis may have been viewing Arthur, that Arthur is the ancient king that the modern world is in desperate need of. And so we get that same sense evoked here with Peter's making that direct connection. That's just as though they were Anglo-Saxons or ancient Britons coming back to modern England. Uh, in this sense, they are ancient kings and queens of Narnia coming back to uh, the, moder- the modern Narnia. Right after this moment is when we get the first great incident of the chapter where the children discover this boat coming up the water and they hide in the uh, woods to look at what's happening. And the boat carries this wonderful image where Lewis contrasts this notion of the cold, menacing, mechanical quality of the modern world in this new tyrannical Narnia, contrasted with this old and ancient magic of the the former Narnia, the, the beauty of the ancient Narnia. And that image is these two soldiers Ah, uh, coming up the water in the boat, and the soldiers are wearing um, chainmail steel caps, and they're talking in rough tones about drowning their captive. And the captive is this bagged dwarf. and the bag is obviously the, uh, uh, wriggling. They pull the dwarf out and he's reluctant and fighting and so on. And I just find that to be a, a powerful image of new Narnia versus old Narnia. that new Narnia is typified with this rather blunt, uh, direct language of drowning their their captive. These soldiers who speak in harsh tones to one another, and then you have this dwarf, two soldiers and a dwarf. I, in the twentieth century, you'd have something like soldiers being its most profound representative. The twentieth century being the most bloody century in human history, so a soldier would be a good uh, image for the twentieth century human. Um, what would be a good image for an ancient human? I imagine something from the Old Testament, a figure of magic, uh, a figure of um, the wonder and the glory of God, something like a Moses or an Elijah or even Adam, All right? Man in his natural state, man in the state in which he was designed to be versus man in his mechanistic, secular, um, bloodthirsty means that we have under uh, Miraz's tyranny here in the new Narnia. So the the soldiers attempt to drown the dwarf. What a statement. And yet it's Susan who comes in and she, Susan fires an arrow, strikes the helmet of one of the soldiers, uh, frightens him. She uh, purposely doesn't shoot to kill. She, uh, the arrow twangs off of his helmet and the two soldiers in their fright leave and the children uh, encounter this dwarf, uh, Trumkin. Trumpkin's opening line is, "Well, whatever they say, you don't feel like ghosts," which is an interesting statement. It implies that there is this legend about Care Paravel and that area of Old Narnia that is haunted by ghosts. You can imagine it's a scare tactic from Miraz's forces to uh, keep people from going there. But also, I think it's it's revealing that Trumpkin's uh, statement implies that Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy ought to be ghosts. Uh, that there's no way that they could actually be who they are, King Peter, Queen Susan, King Edmund, and Queen Lucy. The statement that they are ghosts, the the legend that that area is haunted by ghosts is an attempt to minimize and reduce the magical thickness of old Narnia. That, it's, the same that, it's the same tactic someone might have toward Jesus, that Jesus can't really be who he was. And Jesus was just this this fairy tale. Jesus is this legend. Jesus is just this nice guy. He's just a a good teacher, I guess. But there's no way he could actually be the son of God. In mere Christianity, Lewis uh, argues for uh, the reality of Christ, the thickness of Christ that um, he claimed to be God. Either he was or he wasn't. Uh, And you see this modern notion of trying to diminish the potency and the power of Jesus and the power of his miraculous claims by uh, reducing them down to mere ghosts, the same sense you get here from Trumpkin. And yet he says they don't feel like ghosts. They look real. Perhaps Peter and Edmund and Susan and Lucy are really back, uh, which of course is true. His second statement is also revealing. He says, anyway, ghosts or not, you've saved my life and I'm extremely obliged to you. And I love uh, this inkling we get about Trumpkin being obliged to uh, the Pevensey children because, in effect, that's true. These are the high kings and queens of Narnia. Trumpkin, as an old Narnian, uh, owes his allegiance to these children. Now, he doesn't know who they are yet. He, at the end of the chapter, he begins to think he might be connecting the dots, that he might recognize them, uh, though he doesn't believe in them. And we find that out in the story, that Trumpkin doesn't believe in all the old Narnia stuff. Um, but the fact that he says, I'm, ob- I'm obliged to you, foreshadows a famous declaration he'll make to Caspian later on, right bef- Right at the end of the story he's about to tell the children. And this is the moment where uh, Caspian and his forces are mounting a defense against Miraz. The, the battle looks grim, um, it looks quite hopeless for Caspian and his people, and Caspian decides, as a last measure of war, to blow Susan's horn. He's not sure if that old magic and the old legends are real, and yet he has this artifact from ancient Narnia that legend has it, once someone blew the horn, help would come. And so Caspian is debating whether or not he should blow this horn. And uh, he ultimately decides to do it, of course, and that's the plot device that brings Uh, the Pevensey children from the train station into Narnia. The horn summons them into Narnia again. But Trumkin doesn't believe in all of that. Trumkin thinks it's just simply stories, and he doesn't believe there's actually anything to it. And yet, when Caspian uh, requests for somebody to go and see if the horn actually summoned anyone, to go to Paravel and see if anybody has landed there, Trumkin agrees to go. And uh, I want to read what Trumpkin says. This is uh, the end of chapter seven. We're not there yet. But Trumpkin says, send me, sire, I'll go. Caspian responds, but I thought you didn't believe in the horn, Trumpkin. Listen to the Trumpkin's response. No more I do, your majesty. But what's that got to do with it? I might as well die on a wild goose chase as die here. You are my king. I know the difference between giving advice and taking orders. You've had my advice, and now it's the time for orders. And I love this phrase. Doug Wilson, um, in his book, What I Learned in Narnia, talks about this phrase and its subtlety, but also its power, where he says, I know the difference between giving advice and taking orders, where he doesn't believe that the horn will do any good. No more I do, your majesty. I don't believe in this, and yet you've given me the command. And so I will go. And I think there's so much power in that to the Christian life where the Christian needs to know the difference between giving advice and taking orders. We do not have to have a full purchase on everything God has commanded of us. We are merely to take the orders we've been given and to say, send me, sire, I'll go. Right? And of course, to Trumpkin's (laughs) shame, I I imagine uh, when he gets here, over time, he'll discover the horn was true and it really did work and he was wrong. And yet, He knew the difference between giving advice and taking orders. And here in chapter three, he tells Peter, I'm extremely obliged to you, which is true. He is uh, putting himself in a position of service. Later on, uh, he will admit to the children that he's a dangerous criminal, that he and others have formed a sort of a rebellion against Miraz. We're beginning to get the pieces of the story. I love though, he says, I'm a dangerous criminal. I am, said the dwarf cheerfully. (laughs) <laughs> which is great the, the cheerful admission that he is a dangerous criminal which what a great statement for you and me you and i are dangerous criminals in this modern world we carry the torch of an ancient wonder we are carrying the truth of a miraculous gospel we we are uh, re- we are rebels in this modern world we are enemies of the state of evil enemy of the state of godlessness by hawking the power of the church of Christ. And so I think we can say cheerfully that we are dangerous criminals, mounting uh, forces of rebellion against Miraz, against the false kings of this age. And so finally, uh, they commence to having a breakfast. Mm -hmm. The children tell Trumpkin that uh, they only have apples. Trumpkin says, "I, I imagine it's up to me then to host breakfast for you all. And so he uh, leads them on a fishing expedition. I, I, I love the portrait of these children in Trumpkin having a, a meal of fish um, on the beach uh, against the water here. I, it's just a, It reminds me of Christ and his disciples. Um, and Edmund offers to go get firewood for the, for the fish fry. He says, we've got some up at the castle. And the dwarf gave a low whistle. This is what Lewis says. The dwarf gave a low whistle. Beards and bedsteads, he said. So there really is a castle after all. Notice that. Could it be that the stories are true? Could it be that the legends are real? So there really is a castle after all. It's only a ruin, said Lucy. The dwarf stared round at all four of them with a very curious expression on his face. And who on earth, he began, but then broke off mark that right so there really is a castle it's only a ruin lucy says but still trumpkin's intrigued there really is a castle and he looks at all of them very curiously and he says who on earth are you he starts to wonder if if this is a castle if this if Carpiravel is real then maybe king peter is real and maybe king peter is here and maybe he really has returned I love this, this sense of innocence and wonder at the story being true. I, we Christians must have the same wonder. Stories are true. Jesus is true. And he really will, he really will return. Finally, at the end of the chapter, Trumpkin begins to uh, explain who he is. He tells the children, first of all, I'm a messenger of King Caspian's. Who's he? Asked four voices all at once. Caspian the 10th. King of Narnia, and long may he reign, answered the dwarf. That is to say, he ought to be king of Narnia, and we hope he will be. At present, he is only king of us old Narnians. What do you mean by old Narnians, please? asked Lucy. Why, that's us, said the dwarf. We're a kind of rebellion, I suppose. Notice what's happening in this conversation. This is a parallel to the children's meal that they shared with the beavers. Back in the line, the witch in the wardrobe. The similarities are interesting. They're, they're in each circumstance, with the children meeting at the beaver's dam and the children meeting with Trumpkin here at this breakfast, both involve a meal and the telling of a great story. Both involve um, the uh, sense of a prophecy uh, regarding a king. In the beaver's sense, they explained to the children who Aslan was. And in, uh, Trumpkin's case, he's explaining who Caspian is. And in both, in both circumstances, the children are unaware of, of who this King is. In the first sense, they didn't know who Aslan was and the Beaver, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver had to explain the prophecy. Um, wrong shall be right when Aslan comes in sight. And here now, uh, Trumpkin has to explain to them who Caspian is. Caspian the 10th, king of Narnia, and long may he reign. So there's this very pleasing sense of parallelism here where the children are being invited into the story that they have missed out on. That while they've been gone in that thousand years of Narnian history, we have gotten up to the point of Caspian the 10th. And there are all sorts of details that the children will need to be filled in on. Um, Trumpkin explains that uh, that Caspian is a Narnian in a manner of speaking. He's actually a Telmarine. And there's and the children say, who what's a Telmarine? Um, and of course, this is Caspian the 10th. So <laughs> there have been 10 in that long history that we need to cut a, get caught up with, and we will. But the chapter concludes with this wonderful cliffhanger uh, where uh, the dwarf says this, oh, I'm, I'm doing this very badly. Look here. I think I'll have to go right back to the beginning and tell you how Caspian grew up in his uncle's court and how he came to be on our side at all. But it'll be a long story. And Lucy has this great response. She says, all the better. We love stories. Yes and amen. Just picture this, Trumpkin leaning back after a wonderful fish fry, uh, lighting his pipe, the four children leaning in to listen around the fire, as Trumpkin begins to tell the tale of who Caspian is, who his uncle is, And what has happened to the old Narnia? And Lucy says, as you and I might as well, we love stories. And so that concludes chapter three, titled The Dwarf. Uh, Make sure you tune in next week as we look at chapter four, the beginning of Trumpkin's tale, uh, which is titled The Dwarf Tells of Prince Caspian.